An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're very pleased to welcome our guest, financial technology entrepreneur and investor, Jeff Crutton. Jeff has started not one, but two fintech success stories. Acorns, the first micro-investing platform, which is now a decade old and has helped 9 million customers invest some 15 billion into diversified portfolios. And I first met Jeff when he asked me to consult to his second company, Say, which helps individual investors communicate with the companies in which they invest. Say was successfully sold a little more than a year ago as of this recording. And believe me, what I did for Say had very little to do with that very profitable exit, but Jeff's vision did. Jeff has now teamed with partners to form the Treasury, which in a very short time has become the go-to private equity firm for startup and early stage financial technology companies. The Treasury has funded companies seeking to disrupt everything from how people vote at corporate annual general meetings to how we prepare our taxes. Oh, and by the way, Jeff's done all this very quickly. He was a Forbes 30 under 30 honoree in 2016, which means he's only about 35 today. Welcome, Jeff. Appreciate the math there. I actually just turned 36. So it happens when you record something in November of the year. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your origin story? I, I mean, I know your dad, who is one of your co-founders at Acorns, is a huge influence. Mm -hmm. I know your first investment was stock in a cheese company that went bust. And that yep. you played golf on the high school team and you were a math geek at college. A good one, I might add, graduating Phi Beta Kappa. But connect the dots for us. How did you become the person you are today? I'm still trying to connect the dots, but we can start with that, that, that cheese investment, really my father, because that really impacts the story for Acorns, the story for Say, and really everything that follows. You know, my dad was a, an investment banker. My dad's dad was an investment banker. My dad's dad's dad was an investment banker. That's as far back as we can go because he was an orphan. We don't know anyone beyond that on my dad's side. And my dad talked about what he did for work when he would come home. And I was super curious when I was young. I wanted to learn about everything, tons of questions. And I'd ask my dad, you know, what, what he was doing. And he would talk about comic book companies he was raising money for or, or candy companies or toy companies. And he would bring those home when I was young. And, you know, it was exciting for me, obviously, to, uh, to get free candy, toys, games. And he also incorporated a bit of, of what he did for these companies in terms of helping them expand and help them create more toys, helping them create more candy, more games. Obviously, there's a lot more to it, but that was the universe I was, I was interested in when I was young. And eventually, when I was about 12 years old, I was able to make my first investment. My dad helped me open up a little Schwab account. It was part of his account. This is early days. This is like when, when online brokerage first came out. And he asked me about buying my first stock and, and what I wanted to buy. He gave a few recommendations. 
he did recommend this cheese company that went bust. So I, I will blame him, of course. All my good stock picks are mine. All my bad ones are, are, are his fault. And the thing that really struck me, though, was the, it was the first thing I ever really owned. And I think when you're 12 years old, owning anything, especially when you have three brothers, as I did, is really a big deal. And I'm the third oldest, so I grew up with, with hand-me-downs to an extent. So having something that was mine was exciting. And having a, a company that I owned stock in was even more exciting. And that was much more exciting than actually what the company did. So, you know, yes, I liked cheese. <laughs> that was probably the worst investment I could have made. But the, the feeling I had when I made that investment, that really carried with me. That sense of ownership was thrilling and exciting. And I would race home from school to watch my few hundred dollar investment move a few pennies each day. And I would log in online. And it was, it was cool and interesting. My friends would come over and I would talk about it as if I was some sophisticated investor. And really, I, I knew very little. But, but that's where it started. So as long as we're talking about early days, let me, let me move from 12 to teenagers. And I don't normally ask about that time period of people's lives, but I have to ask you about high school. Because in my research, I discovered something extraordinary. You graduated from St. Joe High School in California in 2005. And as I said in the introduction, you were a Forbes 30 under 30 honorary. So it turns out that three other people in St. Joe at that exact same time were also named to the Forbes 30 under 30 list. I don't know if you remember any of them, but a guy named Mark Ramadan, who was a year ahead of you, and Lisa Kahn and Matthew Schlick, who were a year behind you, I believe. What was in the water of that school? I mean, <laughs> such a concentration of talent. Uh, and then they're, they're all wonderful people. The school was a startup when we went. Sage was started in, in 2000, 2001. Our class was the third graduating class. And they were still figuring out how to, how to run things as we went there. They're great teachers, some structure, but... I wonder a little bit if the fact that we went to a startup high school impacted our, our willingness to, to start things. Frankly, Orange County, there's, there's a lot of wealth, a lot of opportunity. And I think when you combine that wealth and opportunity with, I think, a sort of flexible, open-minded learning environment, you can get some interesting things. And I think that the schools continued to, to do a great job. I had a good time and yeah. We didn't really think of it as a startup at the time, though, but, you know, sort of looking back through my entrepreneurial lens, I <laughs> realized that they're really trying to figure things out. But yeah, it's worked out for some people. Last question before we get to, to real business-oriented stuff. The last time I saw you, you were recovering from a, a particularly nasty skiing accident. Um, I, as you know, had a life-threatening accident myself, a uh, biking accident, and it can change you. So what happened? How are you? And has your mentality changed in any way? Have you taken anything from the experience? Yeah. So I, I was at Jackson Hole, which if you want to go to a mountain and, and feel like you're the worst skier out there, I recommend you go there. That, that was my first feeling before I even fell down. And it was a pretty average slope. It was like the friendliest slope on the mountain and the friendliest run. And it was a nice powder day. And... A very gentle fall, actually. I was, I was actually getting a lesson. And I fell in just the right way where my ski had flipped over and, and cut straight through my quad tendon right over my kneecap. And it was shocking because I get up and I look down and my, my ski pants are, are open, cut open, because it cut clean through the pants. And I couldn't even figure out what, what had happened. 
And I look down, I see, I see a bit of blood and I nearly pass out. I'm, I'm fine now. It was shocking at the time. It's, it's amazing how like one little two, three inch gash when strategically placed on your body can completely debilitate you. And uh, got back into therapy, walking, hiking, biking again now, but yeah, it was tough. You don't, you don't plan for these things. So fortunately I have great family and friends that were there to help me. And I think the hard thing too, is something like a knee, when you're just completely immobilized, you really have to rely on other people. And, you know, I love living out in the mountains and hiking and camping. Uh, and I really value my, my independence there. So it was a nice opportunity though, to rely on some, some really dear friends that were there to help me. Let's turn to business for a second. Acorns has become so successful that it's become a bit of an entrepreneurial legend. It's held out as an exemplar for financial technology startups. So why don't you briefly explain what Acorns is, how you had the idea for it, and what you think mm -hmm. has made it a success? I think I'll walk back in terms of the, the origin story. Now, Acorns really started out as, you know, a product idea and not even a company idea. Just wouldn't it be cool if I could invest my spare change? And this is actually a somewhat old idea, at least the, the spare change idea. Bank of America had a program, Keep the Change, many years ago. I thought it was so cool, both because I'm you know, curious about how that change adds up. And then also it's a nice way to help people save money in the background of life. But at the time, this is 2011, I'm just about to be a senior in college at Lewis and Clark. And I was playing with this idea, getting feedback from my dad. I was calling it microinvest. And basically I was playing with, with designs for this, this fractional investing app. And you may think, okay, like, you know, another app, 2011, Flop, E-Trade, they had apps, right? But believe it or not, it, yes, they had apps, but the apps were for existing customers and not for new customers. And really leveraging app distribution for onboarding new customers is the big idea behind Acorns. Now, now how do you fully leverage app distribution? You need to make the big decision to invest a small decision, an app-appropriate decision. So taking big dollars, really making it small dollars, helping people find the money to invest in the background of life. It's easy to commit to investing spare change, right? It's easier to commit to investing $1 50 times than $50 once, especially for a college student. The next thing was, you know, we need to, to pick the investments for people to make because when given too many options, people tend to, to delay that decision, right? They want to talk to their uncle who's good at stock picking or someone else. How do we shortcut that? And we settled on, you know, diversified portfolios of, of low-cost ETFs. And then finally, and I think most importantly, how do we make this a two-minute process on your phone using information that's top of mind? And by top of mind, I mean, you don't need to pull out a credit card. You don't need to pull out your ID, things that you just know. That part was extremely challenging. That's what took us from how do we create a very simple app to how do we create a very sophisticated regulatory infrastructure to support it. And so the first idea for Acorn started as effectively a, an app idea without, without knowing at all what it would become in terms of the effort and energy to build the, the company behind it. And I think that building a, a great product is, is one thing. Building a, a great company is another, and, and, and that's, that's still in progress. And, and the team at Acorns has, has done a fan, fantastic job building on this initial product. But to dig in a bit more, so at first we wanted to, to partner with a Schwab, an Ameritrade, someone else to carry the small account. 
Because if you're helping people invest their change, the first problem you encounter is, well, who can economically carry these small accounts? Certainly not a Pershing or Bank of New York. No old school clearing firm is interested in these accounts. It doesn't make sense. We couldn't find anyone that was really excited about young people investing. They said, young people don't invest. They don't want to invest. We'll talk to them when they're older and have money. Um, of course, the thinking there for us is, well, if we reach them when they're younger, these people will grow older. And when they graduate and get jobs, you'll, have, you'll be in a position to, to serve them as they, as they grow. The other thing is everyone is interested in investing. That's why it's such a powerful financial service. It's the most interesting financial service that exists. It's inherently aspirational. It's long-term. You talk to a child about investing and owning something, it's compelling and exciting. I don't think that applies to, to saving or savings accounts in the same way. Um, certainly young people may like to spend money, but Usually their parents are buying things for them. So even, even that pain point is sort of less interesting than, than investing. And I think young people also talk about their first investment. And this really helped Acorns. When people make their first investment, they talk about it with their friends. They talk about it with their family. And so that all helped with the initial launch of the company, which was focused entirely on college students. And after about two years of building the company and really building out the regulatory infrastructure to support this very simple app, we launched. And unfortunately, there was a ton of excitement. Turns out some people are very interested in investing. And when they make their first investment, they shatter from the rooftops and they show their friends about it and they talk to their friends about it. And all of that helped Acorns grow rapidly in the beginning. 80, 90% of our growth was organic word of mouth. And, and when Acorns launched, it actually was the first uh, mobile-first investing product, uh, which means it was the first app where you could onboard new investment accounts. And that was, a, that was a big boost to us. The world changed a little bit today. There's more competition. The app store is, is a little, um, there's a lot more competition for eyeballs. Facebook isn't as effective as it used to be. So the timing was great to launch Acorns in 2014 was a massive opportunity. We had a, a few big waves behind us, especially the wave. The mobile wave was still new. The wave towards passive investing was also helpful to us. Without, without ETFs, it wouldn't really have been economical for us to offer these streamlined portfolios. And finally, when you're the only one, it's, it's easier to, to stand out. So you mentioned the two years. The legal documents, I think, say Acorn was founded on February 29th, leap day, leap day. Yeah. Yeah, in 2012. Any significance to that? We got close to it. We, I think we, we thought it would be funny. It was so close that it worked out on that day. It wasn't really intentional, but yes, in some ways, Acorns is a very young company and I was a senior in college and it was actually, you know, I had actually enrolled at, to go to graduate school at Columbia to study financial engineering. Acorns was not the, the first plan, right? Cause, cause remember this is this is an idea of like something kind of cool that could be built and, and let's see if we can make it something. And I remember when I got close to graduating, I, I made the decision to, to, to focus on, on Acorns. And I, I moved home with my parents, which is convenient when, you're, when your father's your co-founder. I don't, I'm not sure how crazy my mom was about it in every way because we're talking about work all the time and she's surrounded by it. But I had this one moment where I, was, I, I went on like a, a date and I, I came home and they asked me like, oh, do you have any roommates? I'm like, oh, I live with my parents. And they're like, oh, I'm not going to date anyone that lives with their parents. And I had this, this feeling like, oh my God, I've made the biggest mistake in my life. I, 
I didn't go to graduate school. I moved home with my parents. I'm starting this thing that is, seems impossible to figure out. Uh, what did I get myself into? As you know, you were, you were young and the timing is right. Do you think that, that one reason there's not just you, but a whole new generation of fintech entrepreneurs is just that people of my generation and most people on the podcast know this, but an older generation than you are, just don't get being a digital native, that being a digital native gives the new generation of fintech entrepreneurs just an intuitive understanding of things better than JP Morgan Chase could adjust to things or old line finance could adjust to things? I think maybe a little bit, but I think also we have great examples of of entrepreneurs and, it, and it's all, all connected. And I think it's inspired many young people to start companies. Mark Zuckerberg, whether you like him or not, it inspired a whole generation of people to start companies. And then I think when you look at the types of companies that people start, when I was young, the idea of starting a bank sounds ludicrous. Who starts banks? No one starts. They're just, our banks just exist, right? And then I think when you see fintech evolve, founders catch on that, oh, you can actually create a new type of, of brokerage firm. You can create a new type of bank. It's inspiring and other founders see it. And other founders maybe try to de deconstruct how these fintechs are built and they look into the infrastructure and they see more opportunities. And we like to say that, you know, fintech begets or fintech, because once you start um, to to build a solution and maybe you've built on top of something that's a bit more archaic, you realize, oh, this is messed up. We should probably fix this. And then you go deeper. This is messed up. You know, we should probably improve this. And so there's more confidence as you start to build and you also start to see more opportunity. And so it's great to see the the founder ecosystem develop, which is really the most important part in terms of, of tackling these types of companies. And today, yeah, people are quite confident in starting new companies and financial services, including extremely foundational businesses, whether they're exchanges or clearing firms, banks, and beyond. So you're helping that um, founder ecosystem right now with Treasury. So tell us about Treasury. What distinguishes it from every other private equity firm? What's the overarching vision to what you and your partners are trying to accomplish? We're an early stage fintech VC. My partner, Eli Braverman, started Betterment. And for everyone listening, Betterment was really the, the original advisor. Um, Eli started that company in 2008, really just before the financial, 2007, 2008, going into the financial crisis, which is actually, you know, those, those are great opportunities for heads down building. So he was almost like a co-founder of Afar at Betterment. He shares a mission in many ways with Acorns. Um, People compared us to them quite a bit in the beginning, and they maybe thought that these companies were competitive. They're focused on a slightly different customer demographic. And when I met him, I was, I was building a second company, Say. We immediately hit it off because to build Betterment to a super streamlined, low-cost robo-advisor, he had to build a clearing firm. He had to build out new trading systems and record-keeping systems. So we're both known for our consumer fintechs, but the thing that we bonded over was building the, the regulated infrastructure. And that informs how we invest at Treasury. And so we believe that, that financial services is, is undergoing a massive transformation. It's still early innings. And fintech is going to move deeper into financial services, meaning that fintechs and entrepreneurs are going to start taking on bigger regulatory responsibilities, taking on companies that may be 
may seem impossible to to dislodge, whether they're old monopolies in financial services and, and plumbing. Those are the people that we want to back. The really ambitious founders that are going after many ways, very dusty, dormant markets that are massive in financial services. And if you think about the founder profile for something like that, usually they need to have touched the problem in some sense. We based Treasury out of New York intentionally. Um, we think New York is the, is the most important fintech hub uh, in the U.S. And, and really, really globally. But the, the future founders, are, they're coming out of financial services. You need the Silicon Valley DNA. We have more tech and tools today to support founders starting new businesses than ever. And cloud plays a part in that. You see the app world plays a part in that. And, and there are new there are infrastructure and tools and enabling technologies that make it easier to get started. And so we're happy to be the first check. We do pre-seed through Series A. We like to be early, though. The first deal we did was a correspondent clearing firm called Embed. And I think that's fitting because the thing that bonded my, my co-founder and partner at Treasury was we both built clearing firms and, and had the the scars to, to prove it. Um, so the first deal that we did was with a, a new type of correspondent clearing firm. And that's our focus. And you know, we get asked a lot about crypto and some of these other opportunities, whether that's part of FinTech, but we really look at financial services applications. The technology that powers it is obviously an important part of the story, but it really follows the application. People want a better, faster, cheaper product and experience. And we're interested in, in the founders and companies that, that deliver on that, regardless of technology. So you've described what you're looking for in entrepreneurs of people who are disrupting current models at a very fundamental level. So you obviously have an idea of what the future of finance looks like, which is technologically enabled, much more nimble. But let me ask you to look a little further than you normally would. So, you know, let's look 10 to 25 years from now. What's the future of investing? How different will it be? I hope it's different. I hope it continues to, to evolve. If we take the, the realm of investing, that's sort of most innovated and, you know, we have so many ways to construct portfolios, add money to your investment accounts, diversify, even visualize your investments. But the other half, the half related to, to governance, to voting, to true ownership, has totally been ignored in many ways. And yet it's the, I think, the most exciting, the exciting part. And we have an opportunity to have, you know, engaged owners and investors that really take care of, of what they're invested in. And the truth is we're all so connected with one another and the companies we interact with and know. Um, and yet people don't necessarily share a sense of, of ownership. And so I think that's the, the bigger opportunity. Look, we got to get people started young. Investing is best done early. Um, it's best done over the long run and, and averaging it. And I think it's the cheapest ticket to, to, to education, right? It's hard to get young people to pay attention, to teach them about the importance of, of saving and investing. But if you give them an investment account and their first investment, suddenly they have a reason to pay attention. Um, and so when I think about how the you know, the future looks, I think it's crazy that we have, you know, an education system where every young person doesn't have an investment account. I think that should, that's, that's table stakes for an engaged, an engaged student. So I, I don't want me to be accused of ignoring this or you to be accused 
of being entitled. Um, obviously, as you said, you grew up in Orange County, California, a fairly wealthy place. Your father was an investment banker. And you just said, you know, it's table stakes. Everyone should have an investment account. Obviously, there are people who don't have enough food to eat and not everyone can afford an investment account. Financial literacy in this country is pretty um, mediocre at best. So have you thought about the, I'm not going to say public policy because maybe there's a private policy, but the how to get to that point? Is it yeah. a, is it a not-for-profit that gives everyone a hundred bucks of a, of a ETF? Is it, I mean, how do you get there? Something like that. I mean, I think if you connect it to education, I think that's a logical starting point. If you're a teacher and you're trying to engage your student, what better way to get their attention than to talk about something they own? And it doesn't need to be a huge investment. I think it's more interesting to own, to actually own $5 of something than to pretend to own $10,000 of something. But there's some amount. And just getting that started to to stoke the curiosity. I mean, one of the most powerful tools that, that we can use with young people is, is curiosity uh, and interest. I investing is very interesting. It's very exciting. And if young people are engaged, you know, as actual customers, then I think you have a much more attentive and engaged student. Um, so maybe public schools play a part in that. There actually are public solutions. I think there's also incentives for for companies to to engage young people and, and get them invested early. Okay, let's finish with some uh, short Q and A's. How do you okay. relax? I love hiking in nature. I find that hiking, backpacking, and and biking really do that for me. And so I try to get out every single day, usually first thing in the morning, um, and that's sort of my my meditation. I try to meditate. My dad's a huge meditator. He meditates like two, three hours a day. I can't sit still like that. It's impossible for me. But if I'm hiking or biking or moving alone in nature, I can get a little bit of that. What music do you listen to? I was just talking to a friend of mine about this, how there used to always be music on. I love the Strokes, Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, The Offspring, no doubt. I grew up in Orange County, so a lot of, lot of local bands there. But as we get older, I don't know if it's the effect of, of social media or just having a phone to look at. I feel like we play music so much less than I used to. I'm trying to change that, but I maybe I need to hang out with you more, John. What are you reading right now? Spend most of my time reading pitch decks for companies. I so is that fiction or nonfiction? <laughs> we'll see. I will say that lately, founders are much much more sober-minded, more thoughtful. If you looked at, compared 2021 or, 20, or late 2020 to now, people have gotten back to solving problems um, versus taking advantage of a, a super hot fundraising environment, which we like when it comes to, to building. I think I mentioned Eli started Betterment in the, the Great Recession, and that really informed that company. Yeah, and I, I try to read about meditation and spirituality. There's a book, Autobiography of a Yogi, that I've been rereading. Um, and I try to quiet my mind to go back to, to what's important. And, and for me, that's sort of like an internal journey. And it's, it's a lot of work, I guess, in some ways. But yeah, I, I, I try to dig in on the spiritual side of things. I don't get a lot of that in, 
in, in work. And, and it's probably an influence from my father as well, but I'm very much outside of the realm of financial services and FinTech. Um, that's sort of my, my chief interest. I'm searching. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would it be? Part of me is like wants to go into the, the business mode and, and focus on investing or, or ownership. But, you know, I think for me, what I wish I knew 10 years ago is how important my family is to me and time with my family and also being there and like really bright being present for my friends and family. It's easy to get carried away with, with the businesses, especially if they're mission driven and, and almost become not tyrannical, but like, you know, if, if everything's, if I'm working on the most important thing in the world, then I may be missing the most important thing uh, in my life next to me. And, and that's often family. And so I've, I'm very lucky to, to have a very close family and close friends, but I warn myself to you know, avoid getting carried away with work and make sure that, that I'm there and, and uh, an easy family member to be around too. Thank you. Our guest today at Outside In has been Jeff Cruttenden, a very accomplished financial technology entrepreneur and investor with some thoughts about what creates those successes, where fintech is going, and also how to live a little bit broader life than just fintech. So thanks, Jeff. Just the slightest bit. I'm still working on it. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCundick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.